So we prepare to open God's Word and hear about the wonders that He has wrought. Let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, by Your Holy Spirit, open Your Gospel to us now. Help us to see Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. And even though we have not seen Jesus as Mary Magdalene saw Him on that first Easter Sunday, we love Him. And though we do not now see Him, we believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Open our eyes now to behold the risen King in Your Word, and may we experience the blessing promised to all who take refuge in Him. In His precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in in God's Word to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John. I thought we are currently going on a series through the book of Mark, and we considered um, Good Friday from Matthew's Gospel, and we considered the triumphal entry a week ago from Luke's Gospel, so I thought we could consider the resurrection from John's Gospel, and John's account of the resurrection is given to us in chapter 20. And so we want to read together John chapter 20, beginning our reading at verse 1 and reading through verse 18. So John chapter 20, beginning our reading at verse 1. Let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, 
to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. We are gathered together on this Easter Sunday in a particular way to give special attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, Our church order, as the URC, says that we ought to give special attention to Easter on on that Lord's Day it falls, so that we don't forget the importance of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the most important things that we confess that He is risen. Uh, One of the things that we like sometimes about Easter as Christians is there's a kind of call and response that we are familiar with on this day. I have every confidence if I say to you, He is risen, you will reply, I stepped on your line, but you knew what to say. If I say He is risen, you say... Right? And, and that has become a tradition. Not all traditions are good. We're reformed. We know that. Uh, not all traditions are good. But this is a good one. It comes from the gospel accounts themselves. Because that's what the angels said to the women in Luke 24, 6. He is not here, but has risen. He is risen. That was the testimony of the angels. And the disciples who met the, the, the Lord on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 testified, the Lord has risen indeed. And that's where that comes from, that, that gospel account of Luke, that, that pattern of, of recognizing the importance of that event and celebrating it as the people of God. It's a wonderful confirmation of that gospel truth, that he is risen indeed. Because both his death and resurrection are crucial for our salvation. I like how J.C. Ryle put it, the whole of saving Christianity hinges on the two facts, that Christ rose that Christ died for our sins and rose again for our justification. The whole of saving Christianity depends on those two events, that the Lord died for our sins and that he was raised for our justification. And so we, it's good that we take time to celebrate that event, to celebrate the life and the power of that resurrected life. Uh, when the living Lord Jesus is the one who proclaimed in Revelation 1.18, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. As we want to think about our Lord's resurrection, we want to think particularly as John tells us the story of the resurrection, uh, the good news of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Um, and we want to think about how John shares with us this wonderful gospel event. Uh, First, he begins by proclaiming to us the clear evidence of the empty tomb. And that's where we want to begin, with the clear evidence of our Lord's resurrection. Then he also gives us the confirming testimony of Scripture as the witness to the resurrection of the Lord. And finally, he records for us that wonderful encounter that Mary Magdalene has with the comforting Lord. And that's why we want to think about this passage together. The clear evidence, the confirming testimony, and the comforting Lord. Um, It's important for us as we begin to remember and to recognize that John's gospel is the last of the four gospels to be written. 
And so one of the things that means and why that's important is because John is writing not to give us a full account of everything that happened. He knows there have been three other accounts of what happened. And so John is kind of in a unique position to come along and fill in or emphasize things that he finds important for the purposes of his gospel. Um, And one of the things that he wants to draw our attention to is the witnesses who came to that tomb and saw it empty. He wants us to have no doubt that on that Easter morning, the tomb was empty. And it begins for John with Mary Magdalene, right? She is the one that came and got John along with Peter to tell them this news. So it's, it's sort of natural that he would start the story with her. Now, she's important for him and for his witness, and we know there were other women there, but Mary, is a, Mary Magdalene is an important witness, If you remember back to Good Friday when we read Matthew's account, Matthew makes it very clear that Mary Magdalene was with our Lord when he suffered, when he died, and when he was buried. So Mary Magdalene has been a witness to all of these things. She saw the Lord suffer and die. She saw the Lord buried. So she can testify that he really died and that he was really buried. She was there when the stone was rolled in front of the tomb. And she comes early on that Easter morning, we're told, even while it's still dark, to prepare to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, She comes to honor her Lord who was dead, who she followed all the way until his death and burial. And what does she find? She finds that the stone has been rolled away. The way John tells the story, he wonderfully brings us along to the reality of what's in the tomb. Mary just sees the stone rolled away. That's all we're told about her witness. And then what does she do? She runs to get Peter, and she runs to get John. Um, Apparently, the, the stone being rolled away is enough for her to suspect that something has happened. She runs. John doesn't tell us that she looks inside or anything like that, just that she goes immediately to get Peter and John. Peter, as the one who often has prominence in the 11 disciples, uh, the 11 faithful disciples, so we we know why she would go to Peter. And John also is the disciple that Jesus loved. Uh, He's unnamed here. He doesn't like to name himself in his own gospel. But this is certainly the other disciple who goes. And they both go running to see what she has reported. Uh, Mary Magdalene, who saw him die, saw him buried, has seen the tomb open, and she tells him that, and they begin to run. And John tells us I was a little faster than Peter. He just had to include that note. It's okay. The Holy Spirit let him include that note. Uh, He says, I got there first and I looked in and I could see the grave clothes in there. You see how he's, he's presenting the details moving further along. He sees not just the stone rolled away, but he looks in and sees that the tomb is empty and the clothes that they wrapped the Lord in have been laid there. And Peter comes up after John has arrived, and Peter does what Peter does. He just charges right in. He goes all the way in to see what's going on. He sees also the clothes are lying there, the linen cloths that the Lord has been wrapped in, and the face cloth that had been put over his face was laying next to those cloths, folded neatly up. And so they all come out having witnessed the clear evidence of the empty tomb filling out the details of what has happened. 
all of it meaning to do two things. First, to give us the clear evidence that the tomb is empty. Right? This is enough under the Old Testament law to establish a fact. Right? In a murder case, you needed to be able to establish that beyond a reasonable doubt. And how did you do that under Old Testament law? By the testimony of two or three witnesses. That was enough to establish something as an absolute fact. And so what has God done here by giving this witness? And what has John done for us by presenting the witness in this way? He's saying to us, this is a reliable, indisputable fact. You can take it on the testimony of just those two witnesses, Peter and John, but to their witness, the Lord has added a third, which is that of Mary Magdalene. They are witnesses to the empty tomb. And speaking as someone who would do trials and in my former life, um, in case you're wondering what I was doing this week, in my former life, if you did a trial and you had three witnesses, I can tell you that's pretty reliable. You're going to win a case if you've got three witnesses to testify to something. Um, John is wanting to communicate to us that reality. The tomb was empty. That's what he wants to communicate to us. And then he wants us to ask, why is it empty? The, the fact of the grave clothes is meant to a, us to ask why, to explain them, right? If you take a body, who unwraps it in the grave before you steal it? And if you unwrap it in the grave before you steal it, who folds up the clothes? It was a serious crime to rob a grave in the ancient world. I checked, it's still a felony in California. Um, who would take that time if that's what they were about? John means to us to, to invite us to ask, what is the explanation? The tomb is empty, what's the explanation? And John gives us sort of three reactions. Right? Mary persists in her belief that the body's been taken away. Somebody has opened the tomb and stolen the body of the Lord. That's her explanation of the empty tomb. Peter is silent in this account. We're never told how Peter reacts to the empty tomb. John leaves us to guess what Peter thought and did. John only tells us how he reacted to the empty tomb. He saw and he believed. It's the glorious testimony of the Holy Spirit to the faith of John. But if you have only the empty tomb, you can have those reactions, right? You can have someone with a natural reaction. I saw a body go in, someone must have taken the body out. You can have this kind of reaction we're given from Peter. I don't really know what to make of the empty tomb. Or you can have the reaction of John, belief in the empty tomb. That he saw and he believed But John says something very interesting in his account. He says, you know, we should have known what the empty tomb meant. We shouldn't have reacted differently. We should have known what that meant. He makes a very interesting comment about why they shouldn't have been in any doubt about what had happened. Notice what he says in verse 9. 
For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John says, you know, we all got this wrong, right? Mary thought his body had been taken away. Peter doesn't say anything. John believes. But he says, we all missed something. It was something we missed at the time, which we came to learn later. And what was that that he came to understand later? It was this fact. The scripture said he must rise from the dead. It's interesting, John says to us, if we'd been really listening to our Bibles, we would have known what had happened. We would have known what had happened because the Lord had told us what would happen. The witness, the confirming testimony of the Word of God to this reality of the empty tomb only would lead to one conclusion. The confirming testimony of Scripture is that he must rise from the dead. And it's interesting because in later apostolic preaching, they will attach importance and significance to that reality. They will say, the Scriptures promised this would happen. When Peter preaches his famous Pentecost sermon. He does it in the light of the revelation of the Holy Spirit, the divine necessity of the resurrection, and that the scriptures had proclaimed it. Not just one scripture, but all of the scriptures had proclaimed that this had to happen. Just as the scriptures tell us he had to die for our sins, the Savior had to die to save us from our sins, the scriptures also tell us that he had to live And so when Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon, what does he say? We love celebrating what he says in Acts 2.24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for the Lord not to be resurrected. It was not possible for the Lord not to rise. And when Peter wants to justify that statement before the people, where does he turn? He says, this is not my theory. This is not just my idea. This is the clear testimony of the Word of God. Peter, in justifying that statement, it was not possible for him to be held by death, turns to Psalm 16. And the very next thing he says in Acts chapter 22, or chapter 2, verses 25 through 28, is cite Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter will go on to say, David was not talking about himself. He was a prophet. He was talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And David was saying, I saw him always before me. 
That's why I'm not shaken, because He will always be before me. Because His Father will not abandon Him to the grave or let His body see corruption. He has promised that He will enjoy the fullness of the presence of the Father. He cannot die. He must live. Paul does something similar in Acts chapter 13, pointing to the Scriptures in connection with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts 13, 32 through 35, Paul says this, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? What God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children. How? By raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. Um, Paul ends there with Psalm 16 the psalm that Peter cited, but he also adds to it the testimony of Psalm 2, the testimony of Isaiah 55.3, that he will inherit the sure blessings of David. And that, of course, that verse opens up a whole vista of verses because what was promised to David? Well, in 2 Samuel 7, it was promised that he would always have a son to sit on his throne. In Psalm 110, it was promised that a son greater than him would sit, a son whom he would call Lord would sit on his throne, and all of his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. All the blessings promised to David are realized in Christ. For all the blessings that, following, that follow the suffering and death of the servant in Isaiah 53 are followed by a list of blessings that he would see his offspring, that he would prolong his days, that he would have his hands prospered, that he would bear a portion of the spoils he had won, that he would make intercession for transgressors. What John is saying is we should have known from the whole of the scriptures that just as he had to die, he had to live. This Messiah, this Lord who would do all the things promised in Scripture could not be dead and do them. He had to live. He had to rise. He had to enjoy life and that abundantly and that eternally. John said we didn't understand it at the time. We should have, but now we do. And he wants us to understand. He had to live. He had to rise because of what had been promised, what the Scripture said had to happen. And so we have to praise God that He has not left us without a witness, that the New Testament has come and explained what the Old Testament clearly showed us, that Christ had to rise from the dead. And the thing that really brings the comfort of that reality home in this passage is the appearance of the comforting Lord. The disciples go in this account and they leave Mary there by herself. 
Um, and John, just as he used Mary Magdalene to say she's the one that introduced this whole, started this whole story, he also wants to hold her up as the one who was privileged to have this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And John turns in this account to show the need of Mary for, for comfort in the midst of her grief. She's left in that kind of uncertainty that's compounded the grief and sorrow of the loss of the Lord she loved and had done so much for her. Um, we all love the Lord Jesus for what he has done for us, but think also of what he did for Mary, setting her free from the seven demons that she was held in bondage to, who followed him faithfully, who ministered to him, who was there helpless as he died, who could do nothing but accompany his body to the grave and has now come to render him honor and found that he is gone. And she is weeping with grief. And she looks into the tomb again. I don't know what she hoped to see there. We don't always act rationally when we're grieving, do we? Um, but she looks in again. And what does she see when she looks in? She sees two angels bookmarking the empty space where Jesus had laid. And they ask her a question. Why are you weeping? And I love meditating on that question. Because what it does is expose the difference in this moment between Mary's earthly perspective on what has happened and the heavenly perspective on what has happened. Right, from an earthly perspective, this is either a dumb or an insensitive question to ask someone in a graveyard. If, if, you're, if you're at a grave, a grave of a loved one, and you are weeping, and someone came up to you and said, why are you weeping? You know, you would be, you'd be tempted to say, are you stupid or insensitive? We're in a graveyard. I'm in front of a grave. What more important or what more natural thing is there to do than to weep in the face of death? That's her perspective. This is a Lord who she saw brutally executed. And so from the earthly perspective, it's a question that makes no sense. But then we have to think about it from the heavenly perspective. Here are two angels who are living in the light of the glory of what's happened on this day. Right? The Scriptures tell us that there is great joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. It's a wonderful thing to think about, isn't it? The great joy that's in heaven over one sinner that repents. How much more joy must there have been in heaven when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead? You know, in an eternity of glory, there's never been more joy, more reason for joy in heaven than on the, at this moment for these created beings. I think that's what prompts the question. It's that, it's that clash between those two realities. That these angels are saying to her, you know, actually there is no mourning in the whole history of the world where weeping for sorrow is less appropriate than today. 
This is a day of unbridled, unbroken joy that means the restoration of all things has begun. Woman, why are you weeping? But notice that even that that contrast between those perspectives is not enough to bring her around. You know, sometimes we wish the preaching of the word by human beings who go on and on and leave you wondering how much longer is this sermon going to go. Couldn't angels do better? The Lord could have sent angels and everyone would be impressed at the angel's message. In a way, they're not impressed by ours. But notice that even this conversation with the angels is not enough to bring her out of her grief. It's not angels that do it. It's not the voice of angels that do it. It's the voice of the Lord. The Lord is the one who brings her out of her grief. The Lord is the one who speaks to her in verse 14. Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. She's not comforted by this conversation. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Um, I love meditating on this scene as well. Because we wonder to ourselves, how does she not know him? Right? Maybe if we can imagine all kinds of ordinary explanations. That's what a lot of commentators will offer. A lot of ordinary explanations for why she didn't recognize Jesus. Still dark early in the morning. She's been crying. She doesn't expect to see him, on and on. But those explanations are not really helpful or satisfactory, are they? How does she not know him? How does she speak with him and not know him? What is happening here? That's why I think we have to look not for an ordinary explanation of these things, but an extraordinary explanation. I think the reason she doesn't recognize him is because she's not talking to the suffering servant she always knew. You have that, don't you, when someone you know very well is burdened by something and you see them and you just know that they're burdened all you have to do is look at them and know we'll sometimes say what's wrong it's to see that every day she saw jesus it was under the burden of the cross he must bear we looked at that devotional from kuiper this week in our online devotionals, but at one point he says, the pains of death have accompanied the man of sorrows all the days of his life. The somber pall of the doom and curse which he had taken upon himself ever hung across his whole existence. Mary Magdalene had only ever seen the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But you know, that's not who she sees now. That's not who he is anymore. That burden has been carried and done away with. That terrible burden has been broken. It's off of him. This is not the man of sorrows that she sees in front of her anymore. It's the same man, but now he's the man of glory. He is the lamb triumphant over all of these things. 
This, what she sees before her, this man, is Jesus the risen Lord. The first man to live this kind of life in all human history. Here is a man who is indestructible and incorruptible, who is holy, who is immune to sin and to sorrow and to death. Here is glorified spiritual humanity, body and soul. I think that's why she doesn't recognize him until he speaks to her and shows her that he knows her and wants her to know him. A perfect illustration of the work of our good shepherd who knows his sheep and calls them by name and they follow him. She comes to him when he speaks her name. And it's in that moment that her grief is finally turned to joy. And this reminder that he has brought with him a new order in his rising. It's not full yet. He says, don't cling to me. I have yet to ascend to my father. This isn't the the full and final consummation of glory, but it is a glory begun. Because he says, go to my disciples, go to my brothers, and tell them that I'm going to my God and your God, to my father and your father. He's never called them brothers before now. He's never referred to God as their father, as your father, before now. But his resurrection has changed that for them. And his resurrection has changed that for all who believe in him. That you're part of that new order. And as Paul tells us, if we've been united with him by faith in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a life like his. What does that mean for Christians? It means that we must live. We cannot die. We must live. That's why we'll live even if we die. Because his life is a life that must be lived. And our lives in him are lives that must be lived. And that's really what, that's the reality of our Lord Jesus Christ that turns Mary from mourner into messenger of grace. That allows her to go and to make the blessed confession I have seen the Lord. People of God, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will also see the risen Lord. And when you see him, you will be like him. Indestructible, incorruptible, spiritual, immune to sorrow and to sin and to death. What a glorious day that will be. And it will be true for us because, beloved, he is risen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glories of this Easter reality. We thank you for the blessing of knowing that the Lord who died for our sins has also been raised for our justification and the power of his resurrection has made all who believe uh, delight in the knowledge that you are our God for his sake and that you are our Father for his sake and that he is our brother We know that we are not worthy of these things and are recipients of them only by your grace. So we pray that you would grant faith to believe in the Son of God to all who are gathered here, that we might believe and have life in his name. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.